So it's a great joy again today to open the Bible together uh, as part of our series in Mark called In the Footsteps of Jesus. All about following Jesus in this season and for our whole lives long. And I've called today's talk A Place in the Family. And because of this, I'd actually like you uh, to ask you as we begin to get your communion stuff ready would you do that for me now would you have it ready and would you bring it close so i've got i've got mine here bex and i will be sharing uh shortly Ooh, and i bring it on uh just bread and uh obviously the wine that we need because one of the ways of understanding communion is as the family meal that jesus left us it's a place where we all come together as one family to eat to drink to spend time in one another's company, but more importantly, in Jesus's company. We recall the story of Jesus, the great passion narrative, his love for us going to the cross. And we are nourished and we receive in faith from him once again. So as we begin, would you get yourself ready? Would you bring a Bible with you? Have you got one here? Have a look. Mark 3. We're going to be looking at God's word together for a few minutes now. But would you come with your bread and your wine and your Bible and come and settle down? Make yourself comfortable. Come and find your place around the table. We may not be in one room, but we're around the table together this morning. Come and take your place at the family meal. If you love Jesus a little and you would like to love him more then there is a place here just for you. Because when we think about it and think about it for a moment, uh, the meal table is actually a place that marks so many moments in our lives, isn't it? When we want to celebrate, when we want to gather uh, with friends, we often do it around the meal table. When we need comfort or nourishment for our body or our soul, we often find it around the meal table with loved ones. And actually one of the things that has hit us so hard in lockdown is this inability to do this, both as Christians, as fellowship, but also as our families and uh, friends together. I haven't had my mum's lovely roast dinner since March, haven't sat round that table. I miss it. We all miss it, don't we? I wonder, as we look at Christmas, <laughs> what's going to be possible? We don't know at the moment. And we think back and reminisce to last Christmas, perhaps, and the table we sat around then and the people we were with. You see, the meal table is a place that evokes and stirs many memories for us. This simple piece of wood that I'm sat around here now with four legs on has seen so many conversations, so many Christmases and birthdays and games nights and Sunday roasts and takeaways and homeworks and jigsaws and joys and, dare I say, it, arguments too. When we think about the family table, there are so many memories that all of us can recall. Some of them big and significant moments, many of them just small moments of doing everyday life together. Small moments that we treasure. Often wonder how it was for Peter. Remember, we think that, that John Mark, young John Mark, spoke to Peter, the apostle, uh, and, and uh, to, to write this first gospel, Mark's gospel, um, the accounts of Jesus. And I wonder how it was for Peter as he was reminiscing with Mark about the things that he should include and the things that the Holy Spirit was prompting him and speaking through him to include in God's word in this 
gospel here. And I think there'll be many big events that, that no doubt Peter would have remembered. Oh, don't forget the time I walked on water. Or don't forget the time he healed the leper. Or the time he fed 5,000 people. The time he calmed the storm. But there would also have been other memories. More day-to-day memories that perhaps don't seem quite so special. Little insights into life on the road with Jesus, walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And at first glance, I think today's passage can seem a bit like one of those. Mark 3, 20 to 35. And I can imagine Peter saying, ah, yes, of course, there was that day when Jesus' mother and brothers turned up. And whilst he was teaching and they were mad at him. Gosh, I remember how cross they were. They thought he'd gone totally off the rails. Perhaps Peter would even chuckle as he recalled it. But nothing too significant in this particular memory, right? And yet whilst there are no big miracles this morning that we're looking at, no exorcisms, no voice from heaven, here in this small account in today's reading, I want to suggest to you that there are two hugely significant moments of Jesus' teaching concerning the Holy Spirit and concerning all those who choose to follow Jesus. So let's just set the scene for a moment. If we could bring up the next banner, Leilani. On this particular day... Jesus had entered a house and once again, as was getting to be a bit of a habit, a large crowd began pressing in to hear from him. In fact, so much so that Jesus and his disciples simply hadn't had a chance to stop and even eat. Now, we learn that the word of this gets back to his family in Nazareth. And you can imagine the conversation. You can imagine the gossip, can't you? Have you heard? He's so busy. He's not even looking after himself properly. He's not even stopping to eat. I feel sorry for those disciples of his. I really do. It'll never do, you know. He's out of his mind. He's disgracing himself. He's disgracing our whole family. Something needs to be done. Now, the word used for family here in the scripture literally translates as kinsmen. It's so much more than just flesh and blood relations. It means those who are alongside him in life, those who are with him, those who in that society felt they had some responsibility for his behaviour and some authority over his decision making. And so unhappy are this family, these kinsmen, these folks that think they have authority over Jesus. that the Bible says they went to take charge of him, literally to arrest him by force if necessary, to stop all this nonsense. For they accuse him of being out of his mind. So what is going on here? Well, here we have Jesus' earthly family deciding he'd gone rogue and so they are now seeking to reclaim their earthly authority over him to challenge his actions, to put a stop to his ministry. Yet step back for a moment, for we know that Jesus hadn't gone rogue at all, don't we? He was actually sat lovingly, peacefully and faithfully in that house under someone else's authority altogether. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he was doing just what his heavenly father had called him to do. Now, these weren't the only accusations against Jesus' ministry and the authority he was uh, living under and working under that day. Um, If we could bring the next banner up, Leilani, thank you. There were also accusations from the teachers of the law. We read that the teachers had come all the way down from Jerusalem to accuse Jesus too. This time, they claimed that the authority under which he was ministering was far more sinister. He hadn't simply gone rogue, no. He is possessed by Beelzebul, they say, 
by the prince of demons he is casting out demons. Now Beelzebul is a historic reference to uh, an ancient Philistine god. You can find it in the stories of Elijah uh, in the Old Testament. He was worshipped at Ekron, known as the Lord of the High Places. But here there's no doubt this name is being equated with Satan and Satan's works of darkness. So what's going on here? Well, the religious leaders are slinging conspiracies, accusations and lies at Jesus, claiming he was not just possessed by a demon, but by the prince of demons. And they're trying to challenge his actions, put an end to his ministry by claiming that the authority he sits under is Satan's. Yet step back for a moment, for we know Jesus was actually sat lovingly, peacefully, And faithfully in that house under someone else's authority altogether. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he was doing just what his heavenly father had called him to do. But you can feel just how much a moment of immense pressure, personal pressure for Jesus this could have been. His very foundations were coming under attack from both his family and the religious leaders. You're doing something wrong. You're out of your mind. You're doing the enemy's work. You can imagine just how much this might cause any one of us to wobble, to doubt, perhaps even to give up, especially when those in seemingly earthly authority or spiritual authority begin to fling the mud, to whip up the crowd, to repeat the rumours, to stir it up the accusations until people might start nodding and going, oh, yes, this must be true. There's no smoke without fire. But there are two things we can learn really briefly from this moment. The first one is that we need to recognize that this is without doubt an archetypal spiritual attack, accusations that seek to destabilize. It's one of the chief strategies of the enemy used to attack us. If you could bring up the next um, banner for me, Leilani, thank you. To undermine the work of God, to stir up um, division, it should say accusations that seek to destabilize if you've got that. Uh, Leilani, don't worry if you don't, that will come up in a minute, I'm sure. Um, And I have to say that this is what the enemy does. He seeks to stir up trouble and condemnation and division and doubt through lies, accusations, conspiracies. And I think we're probably more susceptible to that than ever before, potentially. More, perhaps, in today's technical, Facebook, social media context, where our phones and our computers can be filled with an echo chamber of unfiltered lies and half-truths and doctored images and videos, all designed to fire up our indignation, cause division and mistrust. We see it in many ways over the pond in the States at the moment. Even at the highest level of world politics has become an enormous acceptance and also a spousal of lies. It's my truth. It's an alternative fact. I will say it and I'll say it and I'll say it and I'll accuse and I'll accuse and I'll accuse, even though it's unfounded until it sticks enough to cause division and hurt and pain. And I want to say it's not okay because this is the work of the father of lies, of the enemy. We as Christians need to be so careful before we jump on board and retweet and align ourselves with seemingly righteous causes that we have not carefully fact checked, which are just simply designed to stir up the worst parts of criticism 
and volatility in us. It's never been like this ever before. There is this new wave by social media technology that has enabled these lies and accusations and half-truths to uh, explode more than ever before in their power. But we must learn to take the time to seek truth, not rumour. Facts, not conspiracy theories. Reality, not just stuff that floats our boat. This may be a new world context we live in with social media today, but the ways of the enemy are still the same. He deals in lies because he's the father of lies. And when we believe the lies, we empower the liar. But the second thing we learn more excitingly is about Jesus. And we learn that he has a foundation that doesn't falter. Because whilst here the lies, accusations and conspiracies are slung at Jesus, we find they don't stick. They won't stick. And though his foundation and court is being fired upon by loved ones and enemies, yet he does not wobble. He is not destabilized for a moment. But there is a truth that Jesus was anchored in that would never fail him. He carried around that peace, that unburstable peace and joy and love that Ali was talking about deep within him. And this was because filled with the Holy Spirit, he knew he was doing just what his heavenly father had called him to do. You know, he knew he was under his father's authority and there is no greater authority. There is no higher, no more moral, no more wonderful, no more truthful, no more perfect authority than Father God's. He wasn't under his family's authority, his religious leader's authority. Sadly, wasn't under Satan's authority. And you know what? He's not under ours either. He's not our Jesus, our pocket Jesus that we carry around in our personal faith and make him do the things that we want. You know, sometimes Jesus doesn't answer our prayers the way we think he should. He doesn't always do the things we feel we want him to do. And sometimes we feel we might even know better than him. Surely this is what you need to do, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't do what we tell him he should do. He listens to our prayers. And our prayers are powerful and often he will only move when we pray because he waits for our participation. But that's not the same as us controlling him or telling him what to do. No, he does what the father tells him. He told us in John 5 that very truly, I tell you, the son do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. The father loves the son. And shows him all that he does. Such is Jesus's relationship with Father God. That he's never doing something that the Father doesn't want him to do. He's only ever doing the will of the Father. So right now in this crowded house, surrounded by disciples, skipping lunch to teach the crowd. Accusations flying. You're this, you're that, you're no good. It's the enemy's work. No, Jesus is sat right at the center of Father God's will. He's known. He's loved. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and in perfect relationship with Father God. And so Jesus responds to the teachers of the law's outrageous lies and accusations rather calmly, you'll notice at first. He gently deconstructs their nonsense, the nonsense of their logic without breaking so much as a sweat. Of course, I'm not under Satan's authority. Satan can't drive out Satan, he says. If he did, he'd oppose himself and his end will have come. Rather, what you're seeing as I cast out demons is that I have entered into his house, tied up the so-called strong man, and I'm now plundering. Every person free from oppression by Jesus is a sign that Satan has no authority over him at all. 
But now we notice a change in Jesus' time. And it's here that the two huge moments of Jesus' teaching about the person and work of the Holy Spirit are about to follow. And let's look at those briefly as we turn then to our communion. The first one is this. It's a grave warning about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is what one commentator describes as one of the most solemn and gravest warnings in the whole of the New Testament. And here it is in this seemingly small and unimportant passage about his parents having a go at him or his mother being cross with him and his brothers being cross with him. But there is this grave and solemn warning Jesus gives something about not just what the teachers are saying, but the way they're saying it and what they're aligning with and what they're actually doing as they do that clearly troubles Jesus. And he delivers to them a incredibly serious warning. Truly, I tell you, he says, verse 28, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this, the Bible says, because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now, many Christians, particularly the first time they read this, can be quite shocked and not a little bit disturbed and think, oh, no, my goodness, I didn't know. What if I commit this unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about here? Well, let's just be clear about what Jesus is really saying. The teachers of the law were accusing Jesus of two things. One. He's under the authority of Satan. Two, he is possessed by something evil. And actually, one, he is under the authority of his heavenly father. And two, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. Having dealt with the first accusation, Jesus now turns to the second and he warns the teachers they are treading on very, very thin ice. They are close to willfully and deliberately entering into a sin of blasphemy that has an eternal consequence. Now, the teachers would know too well about blasphemy laws. They were so frightened of saying the personal name of God, Yahweh, that was given, revealed to Moses on Sinai. They were so frightened of getting that wrong that from the third century before Jesus onwards, they replaced all uh, references to it with just the word Lord. Because then they wouldn't blaspheme his holy name. A Levitical law said if you did, it was punishable by death. And they didn't want to go near it. But Jesus warns here of a blasphemy far greater than just earthly death. A blasphemy that cannot eternally be forgiven. But isn't everything forgivable, Matt? I want to say to you, in Jesus, yes. The wonder of the gospel, friends, is that there is not One thing you have done or can do that can separate you from the love and forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus. If you love him and follow him, you are covered by his grace on that cross. He took it all. There is no sin he cannot forgive, no shame he cannot heal, no dirt he cannot erase, no life he cannot transform and redeem. Remember that this morning. What Jesus is condemning here. And speaking of here isn't just an accidental sin or to speak an accidental word against the Holy Spirit or deliberate bout of anger or confusion against him, but rather to stand in pride in opposition to him. Witnessing here as they were the person of the Holy Spirit, full of power, truth and love, creativity, splendor at work in the person of Jesus, the beloved son of God, bringing about salvation, freedom and justice to willfully 
stand against that work, to condemn that work, to declare the glory of God that they were seeing to be the work of the prince of demons, to reject it. Well, this is to willfully choose to stand in opposition to God and his saving work and to put yourself in a place of utter rebellion and darkness and powerfully opposing, standing in pride against the Holy Spirit and all that the Lord is outworking through him. You're opposing and disparaging the very presence of God himself and the work of salvation amongst mankind. The Holy Spirit, remember, is the one who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He is the one who guides us into all truth. He's the one who, like the Son, the Bible says, only speaks what he hears from the eternal Godhead. He is the one who searches all things, even the deep things of God. He is the Spirit who brooded over the waters at the beginning of time, who brings about new life then and who brings about new life now, who transforms and sanctifies every believer and who brings utter glory and honour to the Father and to the Son, to stand against him, to reject him. To liken him to the prince of demons is to willfully place yourself outside of his saving work entirely. A place where forgiveness is neither sought nor found. A sin with an eternal consequence of condemnation. And friends, if you're a Christian and you're seeking to love Jesus and in humility you're worried about whether you've committed this sin, then you've not committed it and you're not committing it. For in the place of humility and surrender and repentance to Jesus His grace comes flooding in. His love comes flooding in. His forgiveness comes flooding in and covers all sin. So this is one of the moments where in humility we're reminded of the splendour, the authority, the glory, the majesty of God. His name is to be honoured. He is not a God who will be disparaged by man's pride and lies and accusations forever. Yet just so soon, As he gives this gravest of warnings, Jesus now shares one of the most unexpected but wonderful promises and truths in the whole Bible. And it's the last thing I want to share as we now turn to communion. It is a totally unexpected truth that we who follow Jesus, who seek to follow the Lord, are like a brother or sister to him. He tells us that those who follow what his heavenly father says are like a mother or a brother or a sister to him. We're actually part of his family. This is surely something we could never expect from the mouth of God. You see, by this time, his mother and his brothers have turned up. They send someone in. You know, you must come out. You know, they're cross with you. And he just says, do you know what, guys? He looks at these folk around him, this broken, eager, messy, hopeful, ordinary folk around him, sat in a circle. It's lovely. One of those little markisms, a little um, detail that Mark includes that no other Gospels include. They sat in a circle. He looks at them and he basically says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brother and my sister. Now, I know, friends, families are not always easy. Indeed, we see from this passage today, they can be a real pain. There's no doubt Jesus loved his family. He's not disparaging them in this comment. But we know they can misunderstand one another. They can accuse one another, hurt one another, be a genuine cause of pain. But when they work, family at its best is perhaps one of the closest bonds we can experience as humans. People you did not choose, but who have walked with you and are there for you through thick and thin, bound together by a love and a kinship that's deeper than mere choice. And I know it doesn't always work out. 
But here Jesus is saying, you know, when that works out to its very strongest and its best, there is something that is even closer than that. The relationship you can have with me. God himself looks at you and me and says, you're like a sister to me, like a mother to me. Matt, you're like a brother to me. And I just would never expect God to say that. Never ceases to amaze me. You see, I've been really blessed with my relationship with my brother and my sister. I love them to bits and I know they love me to bits. I know it's not the case for everybody, but I feel so blessed. I know I can ring them and ask for help whenever. And even if it puts them out, they help me and I do the same for them. We shared so many memories. We've done so much unspoken understanding and shared jokes. A deep love for one another doesn't go anywhere. And so much of it goes back to that family table that we've sat around and shared together and enjoyed. Me as a little brother looking up in awe at my lovely, kind, creative older sister and my older brother who I thought was just absolutely hilarious chatting eating sharing stories listening to my stories I remember us laughing lots together with tears running down our cheeks I remember us being told off together at the dinner table when we'd have candles that say Christmas and we'd all try and blow them out without dad realizing that we were doing it we would speak with lots of blowing to see if we could blow out the candles and we'd all get told off and we'd all blame one another and we'd all laugh we'd think it was hilarious I remember the time I told my sister to unleash an entire confetti cannon into my dad's Christmas dinner and the moment we realized just how wrong what we'd done was because every single roast potato, every piece of gravy, every Brussels sprout, every slice of turkey was utterly ruined as it was covered in tens of thousands of little metal shards of glitter. And we didn't know whether to laugh or cry because dad was not happy. I remember my brother sat there sweating, pasty white because he's eaten so much food, breathing through his nostrils like he's just run a marathon. I remember these things. And now as adults... We're regularly in touch, often with nothing much to say, just conversations about the day, politics or faith or work. Sometimes there are deep conversations that are needed. The honest words, truth spoken, words of encouragement to me. They believe that I can get through whatever it is I'm facing. Times of crisis when they're there for me. They forgive me. They love me. We keep going again and again together. They're my brother and my sister. But think how different that relationship would be if I mentioned, say, someone like the Queen, someone in such authority. If I even saw her, I'd be in awe. If I had a conversation with her, it would probably be a life-changing moment. I'd be like, wow. If I shook her hand, I'd be in shock. But to call her closer than a sister, to expect her to call me a brother, I simply have no right to that. And yet the authority of Jesus is far higher than even our lovely Queen Elizabeth, far higher than any human authority. He's the king of the universe beyond comparison, beyond compare. So lofty that the psalmist says, I'd just rather be like a doorman in his house, just anywhere near him. That's all I deserve. But then he goes and calls me and you mother, sister, brother. You see, when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, when we, like him, do the things his heavenly father has called us, then we become filled with the same spirit in us 
that those teachers of the law were disparaging that day in Jesus. We become family. We're born again. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God, Romans says. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit within us means I can call Jesus brother and my Heavenly Father, Dad. The presence of God living in me, living in you. And that invitation to remember that we are a brother or a sister to Jesus this morning goes out to all of us. To remember that he is a brother to us. To hear his invitation to say, look, I'm walking with you in this Corona time. I'm walking with you this Christmas time, whatever happens. I'm not going to fail, fail you. I'm going to listen. I'm going to be there. I'll understand, but I'll bring words of truth and comfort, of belief that you're going to get through this. For together we love the Father. Together we're under his authority. Together we, we delight in the utter joy of bringing glory to his name, of seeing others cared for, healed, loved, the truth shared with them. And even in those dark times, I just want to say to you, friends, when we get it all wrong and we turn away and we feel we're far from God, the moment we turn back to Jesus, and maybe that's for you this morning again, he says, welcome back to the family table. There is a place for you here. There's always been a place for you here. We are brothers. You are my sister. You are like a mother or a sister or a brother to me. And in that moment, we see the father running towards us, as Jesus told us, hitching up his tunic, throwing his arms around us, putting the family ring back on and the robe back on and saying, welcome home. Welcome back to your place in the family. There is a space for you here at the family table. And I want to say that to you this morning as we now turn to communion. If you're not feeling worthy this morning, but if you love Jesus, then I want to say to you, there is a space for you at this table. Come and share in the family meal again this morning as we share together.